Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a wet and rainy autumn morning here in the capital is Luke Herridge. Luke is the operations director at Total QSR, a leading commercial catering equipment company and a service agent for many blue chip firms. Total QSR pride themselves on first time fix and keeping their clients open for business. Uh, Luke, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Morning Scott, thank you for having me. Um, welcome, Luke. Um, I'm really appreciative of your time coming on to the show today. Um, isn't the nicest day for it, but we are fortunately inside and away from the bad weather, so at least that's a start. Um, normally, at this point in the programme, we dive straight into the topic of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID situation, which has hung over all of us like a dark cloud throughout this year, let's start there because it's proven to be such a significant challenge, hasn't it, for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourselves and Total QSR, just to what extent has this all affected things for you? Uh, it's definitely been uh, an interesting couple of months, I have to say. Um, we're right in the centre of the, the hospitality trade. Um, so really for us, it, it's been a time to reflect on the business. Um, it's not been all bad, I do have to say. So we've gone pretty much full circle. Um, we took the decision fairly early on in March to put people into furlough um, as we saw a sort of rapid decline in our jobs that were coming through. Um, and really the, the business for us sort of slowly drip feeded back on. Um, and that started as of into March, uh, sorry, into April and then on into June. Um, what we did, we brought engineers back slowly uh, and some of our office back slowly Um and really for us now, it's been just a case of looking at what we do in a lot more detail. So we've had the time, whereas we didn't have the time previously to, to sit down, really look at the business. What are we doing? Who are we doing it for? Who's working for us and the practices that we have in place? Um, so the time for reflection has, has been good. Um, coming into September and October, we're actually back now to probably 90% of where we were pre-COVID. Um, we've managed to bring a few new customers on board during the time. Um, the, it hasn't all been doom and gloom for us. We've got a positive outlook on the future. Um, and it's been a, like I say, really interesting time to reflect on what we do. Um, and it, it seems to have worked quite well over the last few months. That's certainly um, encouraging to hear that you've sort of taken on the challenge, really embraced it, and you're now sort of starting to see that little bit of a pickup. So that's very, very good. And reflecting back on the experience that you've had of sort of managing the business through this crisis, Luke, is there anything you could say that this experience of crisis management has taught you in your leadership role? Yes, we, we've learned a lot. So being a national company, the, the main thing for us was we're not in contact with everybody on a daily basis. So the, the main thing has really been making sure that everybody within our business knows what's what's happening, our plans throughout the time of people being on furlough and updating them as much as humanly possible. Um, as we said, it wasn't always a positive outlook, so we were open and honest with everybody from the start. And I think that was probably one of the key things that got us through. Um, we brought back engineers and our office staff very slowly. 
at one point in time, I was the only person back along with one of our operations, uh, sorry, along with our accounts manager, um, and then also a handful of engineers. So it gave me a very close look at the business. I was looking at everything from raising jobs to the invoices going out to quoting to our customers. Um, so not something I always get a, a direct eye on on an everyday basis. Um, so again, it's given me a real good look at, at what we do. Um, and the main thing for us, like I say, has been that communication um, and making sure that the people that were working for us on a daily basis knew what we were thinking and what we were doing as a business. That keeping communication open is hugely important, isn't it? Not just, of course, with regards to leading through a time of crisis, but also in leadership as a whole. And what it has actually done, this pandemic has really amplified the need for communication, both top to bottom and bottom to top, to be absolutely spot on. Because um, through the remote working side of things, especially, it throws up a whole new host of challenges in trying to keep those communication channels open, doesn't it? It does. Even some of the technologies that we weren't perhaps used to, I know things like Zoom and Teams are, are now in place more than ever. Um, we've taken advantage of the different ways of communicating, even if it was down to, to sending WhatsApps and text messages to some of the engineers to let them know what we were doing um, and to let them know what they were doing on a daily basis. Any sort of means of communication that we had in available to us, we sort of used. Um, now, even as an office, so we're, we're back as an office, but as part of the COVID risk assessments that we've got in place, uh, we're in bubbles within our office group. So we're spread across two floors and three separate offices. Um, but any meetings that we have, even within the office environment, take place over Teams so that we're not sort of cross-contaminating any of our bubbles. And just thinking about the impact that this pandemic has had on mental health and well-being that's something that's certainly been amplified and leaders have really had to step up during this time and take a lead on safeguarding that just how has that been for yourselves at total qsr during this time managing that mental health and well-being not just for everybody that you're working with but also yourself as well i think it's been huge if i'm honest like we say at the start when we put pretty much 95 percent of our staff onto furlough it was uncertain times for everybody. Uh, people sort of left on that day, not knowing if they were coming back again. Nobody knew the scale of the pandemic. Um, they're really keeping in contact again. I, I keep hammering home the communication, but it's been key. Uh, when we've got engineers in Manchester, we've got engineers in Scotland and London, uh, down in the southwest. So having that communication in place and letting everybody know what we were doing was really key. Um, letting even them know the, the job numbers that were coming in on a daily basis and the members of their teams that were coming back slowly um, was definitely key because then, then they could see the plans for, for themselves to come back. They could see that the work was coming back. Um, as we know, in the media, they don't always give us the, the brightest picture of what's happening within the hospitality industry. Um, but as a firm, it was, it was excellent to see some of those new customers coming back and that definitely kept some morale high. Um, being key workers within our industry, sort of gas and electrical engineers out and about on customer sites throughout the peak sometimes of this um, pandemic. It was important to us that we put the correct PPE in place mm. for the engineers that were back were, were given face masks. They were given the hand sanitizer, gloves, everything that they needed to, to hopefully make them feel safe on site. Um, the risk assessments were in place. Um, and, and for us, still being out and about on customer sites, it was it was safety first and that was first and foremost the, the thing that we looked at 
And I suppose that sort of feeling of responsibility to everything that you're, to, well, everyone rather that you're, of course, working with, I suppose that is one of the big motivators and sort of inspirations which really keeps you going during a time of crisis, isn't it, from a leadership perspective? 100%. Yeah. Our, our staff are the most important thing. Um, there, there are valued members of staff, and, and that was the, the first and foremost, that was the most important thing when, when getting back out there. And if we sort of move on now to touch on the subject of leadership in a little bit more of a broader sense, uh, because after all, that is, of course, why we're on the programme today. I do always like to ask guests that come on to the show, when you think of your ideal leader, what does the word leader actually mean to you? What are the qualities that they really ought to have? Uh, for us as a business, I think an ideal leader is somebody that can that can listen. They need to be decisive. I think as within the industry, we need to reflect on what we do um, and who we're doing it for. Um, and really, as a as a business, we're somebody that's that's very reactive. We respond mm-hmm. to sort of three, four hour calls when decisions need to be made. Are we going to buy the stock? Are we not going to buy the stock? We're an industry that, as you said within the introduction, um, we like to pride ourselves on our first time fix. So it's important to us that leaders within our industry are somebody that are able to make decisions quickly. Um, but the correct decisions as well. It's not always just a jump decision that mm. go down a, a route. It's, uh, it needs to be a decision um, that forms good relationships with customers, good relationships with our staff. Um, so, yeah, somebody that, that's able to make decisions really as a leader within our industry. And just considering the point that you mentioned about leaders being able to be reactive, we've seen that an awful lot over the last few months as well, because we have seen many industries sucked into that cycle of not being able to really proactively plan for the long term future, but they're having to be quite nimble footed and be able to sort of innovate and adapt to changing guidelines and changing circumstances quite often at short notice. With that consideration in mind, would you say that your sort of leadership style pre-pandemic has changed since the start, since, of course, COVID really took hold? 100%. So not only has is, is the COVID uh, taught me something about myself and the business, but it's also it's taught me a lot about the way that I lead. Um, sometimes the message that we were giving to the engineers and to the customers was one thing on a Monday, and then it would change on a Thursday or a Friday. Um, so really the ability to change, I've seen that we're now a lot better at than we were potentially before. Um and even from the government point of view, their messages were, were one thing one day and they were they were following a pandemic in a direction um, and we were having to do the same as a business. It's really shown us, hasn't it, that experience is one of the most influential things in shaping people, particularly from a leadership point of view. But obviously one of the big cliches as well in the pe- in obviously making somebody the person that they are is the people that they sort of encounter as well, sort of historic leadership figures, maybe people of inspiration throughout their life. Is there anybody in that vein that you've encountered throughout your career, maybe somebody that you work with that you maybe feel has had a tangible impact on you and helped make you the person you are today at all? Yeah, definitely. I've learned a lot from the directors within our business. So Bob and Charles have been in the industry for a long time. Uh, Sarah, one of our other directors, I've learned a lot from her over the years as well. Um, so I've, I've picked up a lot from, from the business as such. Uh, even down to some of the customers that we do with, I've learned a lot from the way that they react to, to different situations as well, which has helped for me as a leader. Um, but yeah, and I've definitely dealt with a lot of influential uh, leaders and people over my time. And if sort of armed with the experience that you have now, you could go back maybe sort of 10 years or to when you started your sort of leadership career. Um, 
are there any things that you would do differently basically with the knowledge that you have at hand now uh potentially so i've had a, a few different career changes that have sort of taken me to where i am now um but I don't think so. I think uh, as a person and as a leader, I, as we said, I think the, the experiences and skills and knowledge that we build up mm. um, throughout our 10, 20-year careers is, are definitely where to, where they put us now. Um, so I don't think I change a great deal of my so I've, I've learned a lot over the years. Um, <laughs> I've met some interesting people uh, and I've been in some interesting situations. Um, but now, I'm with, as far as personal development goes, I, I don't think I change a great deal. And I think a large part of that as well is accepting that there will be inevitably mistakes made along the way because that's how we have our learning curves. That's how we ultimately develop and improve. And so when it comes to mistakes happening within the business world, it's then on, it's then the leader's responsibility to make sure that they can be positive learning experience for the people around them and not to essentially implement a blame culture as such, isn't it? It's something that's very, very important. Yeah, I think everybody makes mistakes and, and we all make them sometimes on a daily basis, but they're what shapes you. I think in order to be a good leader and somebody that's good in anything, you have to have made mistakes. You have to see what direction those mistakes take you. Um, and, and making, and making mistakes, I think are very important in, in any walks of life in order to point you in the right direction. Do you think some people considering what we've discussed today are maybe born good leaders or do you think it is something that you do have to learn to a degree? Uh, no, I think in, unless you, you learn to become a good leader, uh, then I don't think potentially you could call yourself a good leader. You, you need to be confident and, and carry yourself correctly as a leader. But I think it's probably something that's learned as opposed to something that you're born with. And just thinking about those sort of younger generations of aspiring leaders and entrepreneurs out there that may well be listening to today's podcast and might be quite downhearted about the impact that the current situation is having on the economy and on their employment prospects. As somebody who's made a success of things in the business world yourself, Luke, um, what advice would you give them to really pick their heads up, look at the opportunities out there and really start on that road to success, even in a challenging landscape? Because there will be opportunities ultimately, won't there, for them? There will be, there will be. And I think now, more than ever, it shows that there are lots of opportunities opportunities out there. Um, it's part of anybody coming into the into the business world or in any trade. The best thing to do is, is to believe in yourself, back yourself, be confident in the in the answers and the situations that you put yourself in. Um, and always look in front. Everybody faces problems and everybody faces setbacks. It's how you react to these things, if I'm honest. Um, and as a business, I think the only reason why we've done so well through this lockdown period and through the pandemic is the way that we reacted as a business mm. um, in the shape of the adversity that's been in front of us, really. It's exactly right. And it's going to be a very changing landscape in the future as well as we start to get to grips with the second wave that we seem to be heading in at the moment and we start to understand how that's going to uh, to play out. Um, so it's difficult to really look too far ahead into the future at the moment, isn't it? But if we could pretend that we do have a crystal ball just before we do wrap things up on the show today, Luke, and really think about what the next 12 months does hold, where ideally this time next year would you like Total QSR to be? And what is it that you're really hoping to have achieved by then? Uh, something that we've always been asked to do would be refrigeration. So our business predominantly has been within the gas and the electrical trades within the kitchens um, and, and backs of house. Uh, what we've always been asked to do is refrigeration. It's a completely different set of qualifications. It's a it's a different area of a business altogether. 
Um, and we've sort of taken the decision to go into that area now. We've got our first bridge engineer starting on Monday. Um, we're doing far more marketing and sales than we did previously. So we've got a, a sole salesperson starting on Monday next week as well. Um, we've doubled our, our marketing efforts along to go with that. Um, I think the, the way that we're looking and the way that we're pushing the business forward, we're, we're hoping that things are really going from strength to strength. Um, and I can't see why we picked up a few new customers during lockdown. Um, and I think we're in talks with a few other people now. So we hope that uh, it continues in that fashion. I certainly hope so, Luke, and um, there should hopefully be some real positive news to share um, on that front because of those foundations that have been laid over the last few months. And I actually think just given that there is still a whole landscape out there that does need to become clearer over the next few months, that it would be wonderful to welcome you back onto the programme with us at some point in the next year just to see how things are starting to develop and play out. And we can catch up um, just as to what's going on behind the scenes at Total QSR, what new developments you're involved in. And we can also just assess how far we've come as a country in the time between our discussions. Definitely, yeah, I look forward to that. I certainly would as well, Luke. It's been such a pleasure welcoming you onto the show today and I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. And most importantly as well, until we do get an opportunity to speak again, please do take care and stay safe with all that's still going on in the world too. And yourself. Thank you very much, Scott. I'd also like to extend that message to all of our listeners tuning into today's programme. Do please continue to be sensible, um, look after yourselves and do be considerate of others because it does make such a key difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Luke Herridge, Operations Director at Total QSR, onto today's programme. I do hope that you all enjoyed the interview and, of course, learning more about how the whole team at Total QSR is continuing to strive to raise standards even throughout this most challenging time. Coming up next on the programme today, we'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. During his playing days, Sir Andrew became part of an illustrious club of just three England skippers, including himself, who secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test wins for an England skipper in cricket history. Since retiring from playing, he spent a period of time as director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board as well as carrying on his work for charitable and mental health causes. Very inspiring indeed. And I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan welcomed the opportunity to catch up with him. All of that, of course, is coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. 
Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget 
how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long, and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room. For the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him, and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London. And to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point though, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you're privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those situations. Um, And when managing 
a team. Uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there, there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to, tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because. They'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was always brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so i definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 world cup i thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure um and i knew in order to do that we had to com 
completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. It's quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired. Another generation of, uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women 
young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards, if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though... We're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape, or form, and um, you know, we. I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got. A couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, it felt so much... Uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so it w w what an extraordinary yeah, thing well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely yeah. no they, they were right behind us and um you know we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, because I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. 
And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gotta be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.